Leon Litwack. Do you know who that is? A history professor. I mean, it's a very familiar name. I would have said sociology, but yeah. I had him as a history professor and he was he was quite old by then and he had been teaching there since the 60s. And so sometimes he would talk about what it was like and he would say, yeah, my students really thought that there was going to be a revolution in the United States, that it was imminent. And I would say to them, look, I need you to go out on the freeway, to go through the Caldecott Tunnel and just drive around maybe a little bit, maybe go out to Walnut Creek, you know, take a look at things. There's not going to be a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Fortunately, I didn't think there was going to be a revolution anyway, even though I never left Berkeley. <laughs> do it again, do it again. Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am thrilled to have on Jonathan Rosen, author of what is, in my circles, in my opinion, uh, the best book of the year, and that is The Best Minds, A Story of Friendship, Madness, and the Tragedy of Good Intentions. Jonathan, how are you? Fine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's truly an incredible work, and... I would just like to discuss it because I, I couldn't stop thinking about it and I needed to reach out to you. And I apologize ahead of time. I'm doing a pre-apology um, because I'm fascinated by the book and I don't want to be glib when I kind of indulge my fascination because the book, for those of you who do not know, contains a real tragedy. And it, the main character of the book is your childhood best friend. And so... I just want to get that out of the way. I want to pre-apologize <laughs> in case I'm speaking glibly about events that actually happened, but um, I'll do a quick exposition and feel free to jump in with anything that I, you know, maybe don't put in its proper place. So uh, the book is about you and your childhood best friend, Michael Lauder, who is not just a best friend, but something of a rival, somebody that you measure yourself against. And it seems like you're the underdog in that dynamic such as his facility with learning, with popularity, with boldness. And you do many of the same things. You do the Telluride program together. You both go to Yale. Uh, at some point, uh, he graduates from Yale and he starts working for Bain and making a lot of money. And he's a very young man at the time. And he has a schizophrenic break and he is institutionalized. Now, that, that right there, I mean, that is a fascinating book right there. But as you know, you'll know if you read the book or just listen to me for the next 10 seconds, uh, the story just gets far wilder and darker. And uh, ultimately, it, it culminates in, uh, well, before it gets darker, you know, he, it's, there's a hero, kind of a heroic arc, uh, a hero's journey, as you, as you would say, the Joseph Gamble, where he gets into Yale Law School, becomes something of a cause celebre, there's a New York Times article that makes him famous as somebody who has overcome mental illness to be an exemplary Yale law student. And it all ends with Hollywood trying to make a movie about his life. Uh, Ron Howard behind the movie, Brad Pitt playing him. And tragically, uh, he has another break 
and he kills his pregnant fiance. Uh, is that, a, you know, is there anything else you would want to add to that summary? That catches the arc of what happens really well. Yeah, that's basically, um, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything, A, because it happened in real life, and B, because, you know, your book is fascinating. Sorry, I talked over you. You're going to say something. No, I wasn't at all. Actually, I thought that was a great summary. The only thing I'd say is kind of what you, when you said you can't spoil it, in a way, I started it knowing Michael had killed someone, and I spent years before I wrote the book. But when I started writing it, it felt almost like a murder mystery because how this could happen, not just to him, not just the illness, but how the world had completely fallen apart in its relationship to people with severe illness, that there was that the institutions that were supposed to care for you, that the psychiatrists that were supposed to recognize your illness, that the law professors who were supposed to recognize um, what it meant to understand when someone was actually not able to exercise autonomy, all those things were missing. And so I kept thinking, oh my God, this is part of the story and that's part of the story. And so in a way, what I started with is what you've just told. And yet the feeling of writing it was one of constantly discovering all these things I didn't know, you know? Yeah. And you did such a great job of rendering the arc of it and starting when you were kids and writing it novelistically. I found myself, you know, it was almost the lesson in the more specific something is, the more vivid it is. If I were to say New Rochelle, New York, where you guys grew up, a suburb, Westchester, a suburb of New York City, um, in a fairly placid time, that doesn't seem like it would be fascinating. And the funny thing about it, my father actually uh, was a middle-class Jewish kid who grew up in New Rochelle, New York, after the war. And had told me these stories about it. And I had always, it was always quite boring to me. <laughs> it was quite boring to me. And, but it was, it was very idyllic. And you, you mentioned that Norman Rockwell had lived there. My dad would speak about it with this sparkle in his eye. And they had the best family dog. And um, it was so nice and, and everything else. And um, your rendering of it was fascinating. And so immersive. And there was something about, there's just something about what you did in in being so specific and being able to describe your relationships and what happened and the surrounding culture that without judgment, it did become rather illuminating to the mystery as, as you put it. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. And without judgment is a wonderful thing to hear also simply because when I started, I was full of judgment. And in a weird mm. way, it was the act of going back to childhood. So I wasn't looking at the story through the killing, through the Hollywood piece, through all of these calamitous things. I was just trying to re-inhabit my childhood in 19, starting in 1973 when I moved to New Rochelle and I was 10. And having to embody it made everything fall into place. You know, when you're a kid, you don't think, I really like this person or I don't. You just become friends. You do things together and you're competing without recognizing its competition and you're helping each other without necessarily identifying it that way. And in a sense, that meant that every piece of the book 
would be situated in its uh, environment. So, you know, easy to laugh at psychiatrists in the 60s who declared the world mad and so madness, a higher form of sanity. And mm. we should not take their advice, but they were living inside of a particular moment with, that allowed such things to happen in a way. People saying, let's not reform state hospitals. Let's just tear them down like the Bastille and create something yeah. entirely different. And, you know, once you look at what they were like at that moment and what you look at how many things had been accomplished, winning the war, going to the moon. You understand yeah. why they might have thought, you know what? Yeah, we can do this. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, that's something that struck me. It's why sometimes you have to look at the past with with less judgment. Because I could, I often, when I was reading your book, was rolling my eyes at the utopian idealism of some of the people involved, of some of the people quoted. But then I would think, well, if I was alive back then, um, and I was that particular age, maybe that's what I would think. I had seen such incredible things, and I had been a part of a nation that was now leading the world, and I had seen this workout, and I would seen that workout, and so maybe it was possible to just reimagine everything. I mean, I couldn't imagine being one of the first people to do LSD in the 1960s. I could, you know, what what would I even think about what was possible after not having even known that people could really go haywire off of it? Right. Yeah. And as I point out, I mean, antipsychotic drugs in the, were introduced in the 50s, and so was LSD. And they were both given to psychiatrists to figure out. And mm. so you, you had the same people had a drug in one hand that suppressed delusions, and in the other, a drug that enhanced hallucinations. And one was called mind expanding. And so what was mm. the other going to be? How could you possibly care for people who were hallucinating because of an illness uh, and want to restore them when you were yourself pursuing the possibility of what you would call an expanded mind? And, um, and there were so many moments like that, so many elements that were kind of tragic, but um, also not inevitable, but they just seemed, um, they just kept coming, you know, that's the, pro that's the, that was the thing I had to tangle, untangle, which is why it took me a very long time to tell the story. Cause always there was a personal story inside of it. I didn't know any of these things. The sixties were in the background. They were just the music we'd inherited. It yeah. never occurred to me that people might make laws that influenced the culture that then led to statutes that would eventually empty hospitals you know it just seemed like there was one flew over the cuckoo's nest let's go see it <laughs> yeah i mean that's a difficult thing in general and that's a topic we often return to here is that the substrate does matter and you don't want to be censorship minded or to say we can't have whatever message that you feel might be damaging if it's accepted but People are very much informed by what they see on television, what they read, what's in the news. And I had Sarah Heppola on who wrote a book about she she had been a blackout drunk and she had written her own memoir about it. And we we were frank with each other about, yeah, the stuff that she saw on TV and in the movies did in a way inform some of her decision making. And even if it was her fault that she went down that path, this and that was happening in the culture that sort of sent the message that Maybe it's good to be a little wild and 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 whatnot. But um, you know, I I I want to get back to your generation. You kind of identified a micro generation, and I I loved 
the analysis of it and the exploration, which is, I guess you are technically a boomer, but you're a, you're, you're a, you're a young boomer. And therefore I'm probably not doing justice to how you actually phrased it, but you know, it can probably convey the concept that the party of the sixties had happened and you arrived just in time to pay the bill. Can we get into that a little bit? (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah, we, uh, so Michael and I were both born in 1963. I think technically 64 is the last year. So we were the tail end of the comet and we were not there for all those things we envied, you know, kids who had big siblings who had, uh, not served. We didn't know anybody who served in Vietnam, but we knew people who had starved themselves to get out of service and they were like war heroes or had been to, uh, Woodstock, um, but we, we came in the aftermath, but we lived in a world shaped by the dreams and the delusions of the generation that came before us. And so figuring out what was a dream and what was a delusion, what was a fantasy, and um, was kind of what we were living inside of. And, uh, and, and that was really important for me because, I mean, to discover, to be honest, simply because as I, like, um, 1963, the year we were born, it's the year of, you know, the I Have a Dream speech. He even mentions the date in his speech. And our teachers used to play the, the record for us in class. It wasn't yet an official holiday. And, and you felt so still hauntingly close to the, to the dream, even though your teachers were already themselves living in the aftermath of something, you know, after mm-hmm. the failure of certain set of hopes. And, um, it, it would not have occurred to me that 63, the year President Kennedy was assassinated, he had announced that he was, we were going to replace the cold custodial care, as he called it, of state hospitals with the warm embrace of the community. And, um, and that set in motion a whole series of changes that really dismantled caring for people with severe mental illness in hospitals, or even recognizing severe un- mental illness as a separate illness different from a condition shared by everyone who needed healing because poverty and racism and marginalization all contributed to what the psychiatrists of the day believed were mental disorders that could be then repaired in some way. So there were a whole set of false definitions about what illness was, how you would go about preventing it from getting worse. And um, and we lived inside of these, these changes. I only noticed it much later when there was nothing there for Michael when he needed it. Mm-hmm. I know that's a vague statement. I'm happy to unpack yeah. it in a specific way, but maybe it's easier for you to ask since I've lived so inside of it. I know it's, it's these are these are grand statements about grand statements that were made. And yeah. so um well that they unfold well, as you know inside the book, but um there's there's a lot going on because you know you 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 wrote about and talked about how it almost seemed like treating the medically mad as though they were saying became seen almost like an extension of the civil rights movement, which would appear in aggregate to have been a mistake. Um, and there's just so much going on at the time who could even track it all where um, on the one hand, you're having this rights revolution and a sense of people's autonomy in a sense that we were too judgmental before and we're expanding the moral boundaries 
but it's also happening at a time when a lot of people are becoming unmoored and the the bill is being paid as you put it um and so you're you're perhaps having even more people in need of help than you had before and you know i hadn't really thought about it much until you wrote about it but it it kind of does make sense that you've got those two forces counteracting and producing tragedies individually like with your friend and probably at scale yeah and actually the those two things together are something i was very conscious of when i was writing the book you know it's divided into four houses uh, it's like the first section is the house on Maryland Road. That's the very short street I shared with Michael. And it's a real house. And it's also New Rochelle. As it's a suburb. It's a kind of dream suburb in a way. 45 minutes from Broadway is the name of a song written by George M. Cohan, although it took 33 minutes by the time mm-hmm. we got there. Uh, the second house is the house of psychiatry. There was a grand mansion on the Long Island Sound, and it was actually owned by psychiatrists. Michael called it the Gatsby House. And when he quit uh, Bain, he was already hallucinating, but not yet um, in his full-blown illness. And so it was not yet recognized. He lived in the attic of that house and wrote stories. He called it the Gatsby House. And it was our dream of being, a. we both want to be writers. It was the dream of writing. It was also the dream of being Gatsby. You know, you could dream your way into the world. And the House of Psychiatry as I say, was was actually owned by this pair of psychiatrists who had been very much engines of the community psychiatry movement. And that they became the people who would kind of oversee Michael's care, provide it. And they were shaped by a world in which people like R.D. Lang, who felt that schizophrenia was a sane reaction to a mad world, really held sway. And um, and that was going to have enormous consequences for him. Uh, and the third house is the house of law. Michael actually got into Yale Law School after he developed schizophrenia. He applied before, had his psychotic break. They took him anyway to their great credit. He had amazing mentors who were very devoted to him. He could not do the work, though they found him brilliant. And so um, the House of Law is this place that actually gave him sanctuary. In a way, it was a kind of asylum. It was a walled-in place where people accommodated him. They recognized his brilliance. And the fact that he couldn't do the work somehow didn't erase their sense of him as um, as like an intellectually special person uh, who was gifted as, as he was. Uh, but the House of Law also, ref- and again, it's a real place. It's Yale Law School. His mentors had clerked for the judges in the 50s and 60s who had rewritten the laws of institutionalization. And so Mm. although they hadn't really known anything about severe illness, they played a role in the transformation of these laws. And then the final house is the house of um, dreams, which is Hollywood, because Michael couldn't get hired. He very much wanted to be a law professor. So he decided to, as he said, come out of the closet as a flaming schizophrenic. That's what he said to the Times Mm. when they wrote a very glowing profile of him. And that profile, it didn't get him a job teaching law, but it earned him more than $2 million because Hollywood, Ron Howard bought his story and a publisher bought his story to write. And what's amazing is that all of these houses, they're not hermetically sealed. You know, the House of Dreams is very much bound up with the way Hollywood, uh, the way psychiatry was functioning. And it happens that the House of Psychiatry, the literal house, was built by Cecil B. DeMille, who was... the film director in the early days of Hollywood when Westchester, believe it or not, was the center of 
the industry. And one of the things that one of Michael's mentors said to me afterwards, and the law professors were amazing because it was a reckoning for them too, was he said, don't blame Hollywood uh, because Hollywood's in the business, of course, of happy endings. And they had all mm. misjudged the nature of his illness. He said, if Hollywood is to blame, we all are. Yale Law School gave the story to the New York Times. And the New York Times wrote a wonderful story, but they did not really write the full story of his illness. The Times gave the story to Hollywood. And, you know, Hollywood, as I say, is in the business of happy endings. It's not Yale Law School's job to imagine the world as you would like it to be. And it's not the job of journalism to do that. And all of these pieces had come together somehow to contribute to what really was a tragedy of good intentions. And um, and so, as you say, it's like it was the very specific thing. Michael's illness manifested itself very specifically but everything had a secondary, almost emblematic quality because these dreams were shared by so many people. We're going to end hospitalization and the community is going to embrace everyone. How? No one really knew. No one suggested how. There were no cures. There was a medication that masked symptoms, but there would have to be compliance on the part of those who took it. And and so the dream was larger than the reality. And, and that's what it means to have gotten there in time to split the bill, but not to at least mm. go to the party, let's say. I'm so glad that you mentioned the professor who said, don't blame Hollywood, uh, because everybody was sort of almost looking to somebody else for a, a cosign that everything happening was on the up and up. And I think he's right, but I also think he's wrong. Uh, if I do render my own judgment, I think he's right that this goes down the chain and uh, you're looking to some other authority for um, kind of a sense, like I said, that this is legitimate or good and this is all 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 as well. And, you know, Hollywood looks to the New York Times, New York Times looks to Yale. But then if I just look at this and I look at the attempt to make a movie about the guy's life, I mean, it's almost darkly comic what they were trying to do where they're going, okay, we've got a paranoid schizophrenic. You know what we should do? Uh, we should make a movie about his life, played with actors, and start researching the life and start interviewing ex-girlfriends and everything else. I mean, it is rather remarkable to me, Jonathan, that there wasn't that much skepticism uh, that this was maybe a terrible idea, or maybe I'm just doing the hindsight is 2020 thing. Well, what's interesting is that in a way, the Hollywood version already existed. The Times profile ends with a quote from the Dean of Yale Law School saying that he has conquered his illness. And so mm. the narrative of triumphing over something um, was already in place. And on the authority of somebody who was presiding over the most the number one law school in the country. Um, I think that the motives, of course, Hollywood wants to entertain and of course, Hollywood wants to make money, but the motives were good in the sense that they thought, here's someone who did a heroic thing and he did do a heroic thing. It's only, the problem was that he, he needed a different level of care after his break. And in a strange way, this was part of the tragedy. He um, he went to a halfway house after eight months of hospitalization, which slowly found medication that masked his symptoms. But then doctors suggested 
temporarily that he do something very low stress, that he maybe work at Macy's as at, on the checkout line, that he work in a supermarket. And his father felt, well, you know, he'd already gotten into Yale Law School. So why should his son bag groceries? This is always how Michael told the story. Why would I be, why would I bag groceries when I can be a Yale lawyer? And, um, and so in a way, the idea that your brains were going to save you, which is how we grew up, what we grew up thinking, was still active for him. And that narrative was so ingrained in the culture as well that it's hard to know how anyone could have resisted the story because he himself told it. He was essentially the narrator of the Times article, which then led to a very long proposal he wrote with an agent. And that proposal was one in which he wrote about his illness, but he wrote about the overcoming of it. And so what's amazing is that one of his phrases was, why would I work at Macy's when I can be a Yale lawyer? But one of his professors said to me, I never thought he would be a Yale lawyer. I thought he would be somebody who had gone to Yale Law School with schizophrenia and that he would be a spokesman for people with schizophrenia. And so already there, there was a gap between the reality. I mean, his illness made it hard to there was a gap between reality and his perception of it, but the institution itself um, papered over a gap in his both ability and and the outcome. And he, you couldn't blame him for thinking that this accommodation wasn't an accommodation, but a recognition of his abilities. It's, there's something right there that I find fascinating because that is somebody who is participating in a noble lie, maybe without even knowing it. Yes. And what what is behind that? What is involved in that? Where... This idea that, well, obviously this guy who is experiencing profound hallucinations and uh, horrific ones where you wrote about how he would wake up all the time thinking he was surrounded by fire, actual fire, uh, that when he, I think, was accepted into Yale Law was that he thought that monkeys were eating his brains. Um, And so this idea that well, obviously he can't be a lawyer, which is the purpose of this institution in theory, but it's important for other people to see him as an example that it can happen. I, I mean, it's just fascinating that people, high-minded, intelligent people so frequently think that way. And yet that example you cite, I feel as though I've seen it elsewhere, this sort of sense that we can't be a realist about this particular situation because maybe we can just – we can – construct such a story as to make the world better and, you know, fulfill our utopian vision for what it should be. Yeah. I I want, I'll say two things about that. One is that Alan Sachs uh, is a brilliant professor of law and a writer who went to Yale Law School, who does have schizophrenia. She was at law school when Michael and I Mm. were in college. She did not tell people, but she had a psychotic break her freshman year, danced out on the roof of the library and was hospitalized. But then she returned. She, however, could do the work. And yeah. so there is a difference in that in that yeah. regard. And so the complicated element of it, though, is that his ability to articulate his illness was so great that in articulating extreme things, he sounded as though he had triumphed over them. And I, you know, I grew up in a world, my mother was a writer, my father taught literature, where the ability to tell the story almost meant that you were the winner. You know, it's not, Mm. it's sort of like, um, it isn't that the winner tells the history, but that to tell the history 
is to make you the winner. And he could articulate his own experience. And they were very moved by that. And, um, but the reason why it matters also is because they were of a generation. They were like the first real or second early generation to begin to go to Yale um, to crack the ex exclusion of Jews. They were almost all Jewish professors, very brilliant. And to get through, to get into an Ivy League school when they did was to be, to have beaten out everybody else in your neighborhood. And so they, that began to tear down the walls of exclusion and make merit the new criterion. Brains were now what got you in. Michael had brains. He was brilliant. When we were kids, he had a photographic memory. He read really, really fast, but in a funny and painful way for me, because this is so much the world I was familiar with, they mis mistook their own achievement and brilliance for the ability to bestow that achievement on others, almost as if instead of pure ability, it was like they could grant you a title and make you a nobility. If they, as mm. if they had become a class of experts who could bring you into the class, not because you could do the work, but because you stirred them somehow. And so by disregarding the very instruments that had allowed them to break down the walls, they empowered or bestowed on someone something that was not where he was. And because he was very ill and needed other things, it was... It was contributing to something that ultimately had terrible consequences. Is that clear? Am I speaking to yeah, evasive? No. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, and that's you're an amazing a, mechanism yeah. for how expertise painfully often has come to yeah. work. No, it's you're speaking to something real, and it's something again where your work is not political. It is not meant necessarily as a social critique, but just in trying to reckon with it, I think it's easy for. It's, it's easy to see a lot of what rhymes in the culture and the aftermath and the aftermath of the 60s and how people think that they can just speak their wants into existence. And, um, man, there's also it's there's something interesting to me about his sensitivity to status uh, was also something that really stood out to me, that uh, there was always this competition between the two of you, how... I'm trying to remember the dean of the law school with the uh, Italian name. Forgive me. Um, Guido Calabresi. Guido Calabresi. Who became a judge, he yeah. He shouted at somebody that uh, Guido Calabresi doesn't remember people like you when he had been uh, – he felt offended because uh, he wasn't getting the proper status afforded to him. Um, and I, I wonder if that's something that was just also in a way nobody could know – destabilizing anything that could inflate status i mean the way he's talking about macy's i mean what do you make of that status sensitivity um looking back on it that's not a specific question but i feel yeah. like that's a a theme of the book that i haven't always seen touched on in some of the interviews that that people have done with you well, it was a couple. Well, it, it's a it's a complicated thing, but it's important to me, and I'm glad you're asking. I mean, what one aspect of it is when Michael shouted that at the law partner, one of his mentors had found him a summer job working at a law firm, but he could not work. He want so he asked for his own office, and when they said no because he was a summer intern and this was a partner at a firm, he explained that he'd been in a psychiatric hospital. He explained he had schizophrenia. And the way he told me the story, of course, the person was horrified, but they didn't, which 
was wrong. It's just that they, because he couldn't do the work, what one of his professors said to me is like, they assume, he assumed that the world would be like Yale Law School, but that Yale Law School was also like that is in itself interesting. Someone felt mm-hmm. they were doing him a favor by giving him this position. In the end, they simply gave him an office and gave him no work. They didn't give him an office, but they just gave him no work and they paid him. Um, and when he yelled, Guido Calabresi doesn't remember people like you. He was saying he remembers people like me because I'm brilliant. Now, he always had a large ego, um, but it was also the case that he saw the accommodations as a response to his abilities. But what I would add to that is that he and I grew up in a world at a moment where being smart was really important. I had learning disabilities, so I always felt I was pretending to be smart, even though secretly I also thought I was. But I read incredibly slowly, and I um, would often skip the work, and I couldn't do math at all. So Michaels could do everything you were supposed to do. But being smart was how you were going to distinguish yourself from everybody else and escape all the burdens of the world. It just went without saying that we were going to think our way into some higher realm. And that seems so insane and grandiose, except, of course, that the meritocracy was in full swing. And the idea that your brains really could lift you out of poverty uh, or out of mediocrity were was really in the air. Um But I shudder to think, you know, my own family, they loved me very much. But I think, what would it have been for me if I couldn't have fulfilled even the basic requirements? And I think I feel that there is some a false association uh, of intelligence with worth. And, you know, that's not entirely accidental. Intelligence tests in the 20s and the progressive era were used not just to get you into school, They were used to sterilize you if you fell below a certain level. If you were inside the circle of consideration in the progressive era, then all sorts of services might be extended to you. But it was provisional. If you weren't, they literally, in a famous Supreme Court case, felt that they could sterilize you because, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And so it's almost as if the soul was replaced by the mind and the mind became the measurable mind. And that there ought to have been things Michael might have done while recovering that would have been recognized in his world, in my world, as, as work, as, as, as healthy and whole and part of the work of recovery and going as far as you can. And so it only made the stakes feel higher, I think, that the, it was a choice between Macy's and Yale. Um, mm. But of course, there was no other way for him to find an asylum. He said Yale was the best mental health care facility in America, mm. you know. Um, but when he said things like, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid, what he was saying was that brains actually saves you even from madness because yeah. I'm not crazy because I'm smart. And the world agreed with him for mm. a time. He, he was very charismatic and good at people, uh, good at getting people to kind of buy into his depiction. What you're saying, though, about this idea of your brains will be your your rocket ship, um, it does seem very 20th century American Jewish. It seems very much out of that out of that culture in the sense that, um, I, hey, I wasn't around for that particular era, but it, it, there does seem to be 
a sense that we are going to gate crash and we are going to gain status through our brains and acceptance. And how else could, I don't know, Woody Allen get the girl than by being clever, right? He's not really got a whole lot else going for him. And it, it would be hard for me to envision your book coming out of a different context. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are smart kids competing with one another in the Germanic uh, parts of the Midwest. And I'm sure this happens, but your book, your book is so Jewish. And this is something that's, you could disabuse me of this, but when I talk in private about your book with people who've read it, we all go, yeah, this book is so Jewish. But when you get interviewed about it, I feel like that part of it almost, um, doesn't get talked about. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, it's interesting. I think it's Jewish and because my experience was Jewish and I've embodied it in my own experience. Um, if people ask me about it, I'm always happy to talk about it. And I do have a distinctly, I suppose, Jewish reaction to the tragedy that in a way it um, was facilitated by people who thought they were helping him fulfill his destiny. And his destiny mm -hmm. had to be Yale Law School. It had to be the fulfilling the promise of brilliance. But it's obvious we now live in a society where, you know, a tiny fraction of people go to elite schools like Yale and Harvard. The debate over affirmative action really is, is about those tiny handful of schools. If it were the case that not getting to go to those schools consigned you to a life of oblivion or failure, most people, whatever their ethnicity, race, or religion, would therefore be consigned to oblivion. But they're not. They live yeah. ordinary lives. But we somehow live in a world where the temptation is and has always been that the very smart people don't just make the rules. They make the rules even if those rules supersede your own inalienable rights, just as a mm. person. And what uh, that Supreme Court case wanted to deny Carrie Buck, the woman who was sterilized along with her mother and nine-year-old daughter in 1927, I think, uh, they wanted to deny her her inalienable rights of personhood, her freedom. The only and only one of the nine judges voted against that ruling. The progressive judges like Brandeis voted to sterilize her, agreed with uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes that we're being, that the country would be swamped in by incompetence. The one who voted against it was a religious Catholic. He did not write a dissent, but it seems quite clear Oliver Wendell Holmes was convinced that it was for a religious reason. These are not either or propositions. I'm not saying the Catholics were right, the Jews were wrong. It's, it's not a Jewish position or a Catholic position. It's just that I was, I'm interested in the way in which being smart is a wonderful thing, but it wasn't for us an instrument that would lead to something else. It was the end in itself. And <laughs> there is an element of that almost of idol worship to me, if I'm to put it in a Jewish frame as well, I guess. Well, that's I do have a theory. I have a slight theory on why maybe that aspect isn't foregrounded in your interviews about this. This is very meta. A podcast interview where I'm critiquing what's not asked in a podcast interview, but... I mean, you've been asked fantastic questions in all these interviews. People love the book. Uh, but I do think the Jewish aspect can be a little bit uncomfortable to grapple with because I do perceive your book as perhaps not an intentional one, but there is a slight critique there of uh, Jew, like secular modern Jewish culture that there is some of the 
idealism. There is some of the utopianism. There is, I mean, I, I look at, um, uh, the op-ed that Michael wrote where he says that ev- that busing should happen pretty much whether white and black people want it or not. And I think, ah, there's that misplaced sense of Sadaka right there. Um, so, you know, do you see your book in some ways as not a critique in totality, but a look at a culture where there are its great points, but also its points that you could say are foibles in analysis of that? I would, yes, I I think that that is the case for sure, actually. And I would even add that what was interesting for me was uh, how many of his secular mentors or how many people uh, saw in him something almost religious, uh, Mm -hmm. that his illness seemed to give him a spiritual quality that they would not have sought out in their own lives as having intrinsic value but that they saw in him not as an aspect of his illness or his struggle with his illness, but almost as if by proxy, they were experiencing something that was not an aspect of their own lives or experience. And and it was exciting mm-hmm. to be around him. The, the rabbi, who was one of the last people he spoke to when he lived in Hastings, said he had an aura about him that was mystical almost, like a chassid. And when he met with Michael the day before Michael killed Carrie, his pregnant fiance, he gave Michael a copy of uh, a book called The Lonely Man of Faith by uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, of Joseph Soloveitchik, a beautiful book. Um, but he, he saw him having a spiritual problem. And Michael was having a religious crisis because he had become very religiously inclined in his illness. But in his illness, he kept thinking he was supposed to do things and was receiving commands. But mm. um, there is a way in which, yes, the focus on brilliance in a way that lets you ignore whether or not, in a way that fools you into believing it is synonymous with sanity is the product of an imbalanced culture that doesn't see the whole person. And, um, and that's a flaw. And I, it was definitely a flaw in a particular segment of the world of people who were caring for him, who were these very smart, essentially secular Jews who wanted reason alone to, you know, yeah. dictate the terms of the world, I guess. And I think the expression of his pathologies in some ways is an expression of some of some pathologies writ large or can be where he's hallucinating Nazis every which way and on the corner of his street and replacing his parents. And I think to myself, well, if he was a schizophrenic from the Ozarks and his name was Michael Lamb, uh, you know, he would have different delusions. Um, you know, it's not arbitrary that those were the delusions, that this trauma of what had happened prior was haunting him in a way, in, in a way that it can haunt the community writ large or maybe sometimes make it paranoid about things that uh, can be exaggerated a bit. You know, every political opponent you have is a Nazi. When that's not the case, they're just annoying or dumb. Um, and so... I think there was something in that where the actual material manifestations of certain delusions were, of course, delusional and unmoored from reality, but they weren't arbitrary. And there was a meaning even in exploring those. I I agree with that completely. And what I found extraordinary also is the huge influence that both the Second World War and the Holocaust had on psychiatry itself. So Mm. the idea after 
the Holocaust, which really put the nail in the eugenic coffin because everybody saw where it went. They didn't necessarily think this is what happens when doctors work for the state. They thought this is what happens when you try to engineer people to be better. But at the same time, it gave a new life to psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis did not see things as biologically caused. And therefore, your environment was your family. And then they extrapolated from that to say it was the city. So if you fix the city, if you fix poverty, if you fix racism, then you will eliminate illness, which is the product of these disease-causing, imbalanced environments. But the one thing no one wanted to talk about was the possibility that aspects of the illness were heritable. Genes themselves became almost taboo. So that was one element. Another element was that when Life magazine did a photo spread in the Ford, in like 48 of uh, photographs smuggled out of state hospitals of, you know, the awful conditions in these hospitals, naked uh patients crammed into big rooms. They were likened to the pictures of liberated concentration camps that Life magazine had run not long before. And the people who took those pictures were conscientious objectors, mostly Quakers and Mennonites who did alternate service in state hospitals. And they were justly appalled by what they saw. But immediately it was as if, having stayed home and not gone overseas, they were liberating local concentration camps. And they're obviously, the causes were very different. And therefore, it would have been a mistake to see it all as one giant instance of like horror that we were doing here at home that had been done abroad. The Milgram experiments, those famous experiments where you turn a dial and shock somebody, they were conducted in the basement of Lindsley Chittenden Hall, which had become the English department when Michael and I were at Yale. He was, uh, Milgram was inspired. He was a young psychologist who wrote to a friend, you know, if I'd, my parents hadn't left Europe, I'd have been killed. And he literally designed the test to find future Eichmanns. And so the idea that this test, which actually, without getting consent of the people participating, was a form of torture because they, some of them thought yeah. they'd killed someone. So he was subjecting <laughs> people to a human experiment in order to prevent <laughs> our ever reenacting a Nazi reality. And it, it, the list goes on. Irving Goffman, massively influential sociologist who wrote a book called Asylums, very influential and like published in like 1960, 61. He likened state hospitals to concentration camps. They were total institutions. They made you sick. They caused the illnesses they were supposed to help you heal from. And so everyone was so influenced that they actually altered the way they saw care um, in response to something. But they they were false analogies and false analogies are always all analogies are false analogies, but they often lead to disastrous things. And Michael, as you say, literally thought Nazis were chasing him down the street. Ironically, I always envied his American born father wore a leather bomber Mm. jacket and had this big, bold Brooklyn way. My dad's parents were killed by Nazis and he had a very mild manner. And, uh, and yet it was, Michael, who, you know, I, I, for me, if you told me there were Nazis on the street, it would be like, yeah, of course there are Nazis on the street. Mm-hmm. My, uh, I'd grown up in a house where the shadow of that time was everywhere. But for Michael, who had grown up in what I thought was this kind of freewheeling uh, American household, um, the idea that these things were somehow present was extraordinary for me to reckon with, actually. 
Yeah, I I love the the compare and contrast between your father, a professor, and his father, a professor, and their different manner. Uh, you you saying of your father that he was somebody who was always looking for the exits, and there was a, maybe a shyness um, and a deferential tone to it versus his father who was effectively bullying you for winning out the editorship for the school paper over Michael. I found that, again, you, your your renderings are so specific and so well told that if you just told me that about somebody, I would very much hate them. But your depiction of Chuck, Michael's father, uh, is so textured that I don't hate him, that I see that as part of his uh, ballsy in your face and his love for his son is bundled into that. And it's just, it's just very well done. I don't even have a specific question. Uh, well, it was part that, of my uh, envy, which I wanted to capture because I had a sister and when we played monopoly, you know, she let me buy complete a monopoly. I let her buy the yellow properties cause she liked the mm -hmm. color. Michael's house, he had two brothers older than him. And it was just like a brutal scrimmage for everything. And I was fascinated by that because it was what would once have been called male. They were, they played, he and his brother, one of his brothers played very tough street ball, which I really envied. Michael and I played a lot of ball, but they played like elbows out. It's only a foul if somebody is, you know, yeah. in, can't move his legs. And, um, and so there was something that his whole house seemed to have that I, um, that I wanted. Um, and just as there was something in my house, I would come home and find him talking to my mother while she was gardening that I think he found appealing in its way. But, mm. you know, these are bound up with our very specific childhoods, you know. I, but the, the more specific something is, ironically and paradoxically, the easier it is to relate to. When you're even describing some of the inside jokes that you had growing up, I felt something ring true about it when you were uh doing the the inside joke of he's just a man like any other um right. i'm trying to remember uh oh man was it jimmy stewart who said that yeah um, yeah yeah like just a man like any other and how the inside joke is that you would do it for so many things and uh schrodinger's cat is just a man like any other and then you would have to fill in the blank of the joke and i i I recognize that, and I thought to myself, that is how in these intelligent verbal friendships, how how these sorts of jokes manifest, and it it does ground you in sort of the the prior sanity of Michael before it all becomes unraveled, and it's so hard to really grapple with after going through that, after going through the beginning, after going through the childhood, it's really hard to wrap one's mind around how this person, this individual who is capable of such uh, nuanced uh, relationships, um, how it all comes unglued. It's really hard to fathom, even though obviously it happened. Yes. Well, it happened because he had a terrible illness, which affects 1% of the population. Not a small number of people, no. but not an enormous number of people. And what's interesting is that we also lived in an age where the word mental illness had lost all of its meaning. And so it was just part of that fungible term where, you know, everything in the DSM is a mental illness. It could be claustrophobia or arachnophobia, or it could be schizophrenia. And it, it's not as if people didn't recognize the nature of Michael's illness, but there was a way in which the idea, first of all, that you should treat everyone, of course, with the presumption, not just of innocence, but of sanity, makes perfect sense. 
but the way in which this idea, this joke of just a man like any other, the way in which his professors and even his psychiatrists felt they were honoring his autonomy at a point when he had stopped taking medication, when he thought his girlfriend, his fiance, was a space alien who wanted to kill him, that they still continued to defer to what they assumed was his free freedom to choose um, his own life path, even though at that moment his illness had robbed him of that freedom and that choice, is was was one of the most tragic elements because it's not as if we do it for everybody. People sometimes say, oh, we're going to bring it back. We're going to bring back the asylum. I'm just going to round people up. But actually, it isn't all that hard to understand when someone is so ill, so disconnected from the world around them that they do not know what is real and what isn't. And so uh, if that is the case, Michael was patrolling his house with a kitchen knife before his first break because he thought his parents were identical replicas who had replaced his real parents and murdered them, that they were Nazi replicas of his actual parents. And he had armed himself and he was hospitalized in the aftermath of that grand break. And I remember the terror in my parents' voice when they told me about it. The idea, because it's like a horror movie, the idea that his parents, you know, his mother had to hide, that you might, that someone you love, who loves you, might not know who you are. At that point, the idea that there would be people arguing for his, um, that it was almost a choice on his part or that it would be wrong to forcibly hospitalize him were really arguing towards his destruction. And that is part of what I think is, um, is so tragic and, and painful. And we see that all the time playing itself out. I'm going to ask you a difficult question to answer, um, and uh, sorry about that, uh, <laughs> because I don't have an answer for it myself. I've thought about it uh, for probably as long as I've been sentient. My uncle my uncle had schizophrenia, and um, I didn't know him. I think he, he passed either right before I was born or, or around that time, and I would hear stories about him, and then... Later on, when I was in college and high school, sometimes I would wonder in the back of my mind, uh, hallucinogen, smoking weed, is this going to kind of open up that Pandora's box and I'm going to become what he was? Because you know, some of the literature, some of the research suggests that that can be part of how a break happens. Um, so the big question is, what is schizophrenia? What is it exactly? Yeah. So, um, first of all, it's a bio It's an organic brain disease. It is an illness. The way, we do not know entirely what causes it, and we do not know what cures it. But mm. and again, I am not a researcher, doctor, scientist. It may well be that someday we will recategorize mental severe mental illnesses so that aspects of bipolar disorder are grouped with aspects of schizophrenia and the percentage of people with severe depression who have psychotic symptoms but it is um it's definitely a brain disorder it's a thought disorder which means that your ability to perceive reality is affected that it is also it has both positive and negative symptoms they're not those are not value judgments positive symptoms are like delusions or hallucinations you you are not of two minds as people often use the term schizophrenia what's what's cut or separated is you from reality itself so whether it's proportion a sense of proportion or 
reality testing is is missing. The negative symptoms are motivation. So people often are, it's one of the reasons why it's not false to say that people with untreated severe mental illness with schizophrenia are much more likely to be the victims of crime, much more likely to die on the street because they're not organizing themselves. They don't they don't take, they don't, they can't initiate action, let's say. And, and so it's, it's a combination of those things. Um, what's interesting about psychiatric disorders is that antipsychotic drugs work, but nobody knows why. And they don't work for everyone. It's the percentage of, there's a small percentage of people for whom they're not effective and they have side effects. But the fact that the medication works is in itself a kind of val, uh, affirmation that there is a biological process that is at work. Um, it was believed uh, for a time once, I mean, the, the sad thing is that we, psychiatry lived under the spell of psychoanalysis for a very long time, partly mm. because no one knew any, no one knew what caused psychiatric disorders. Freud did yeah. not treat people with severe mental illness, but he derived his principles as he did from dreams, also from people with severe mental illness, from psychosis. And he thought everybody's all mental illnesses were caused by the same thing. Childhood desires that are repressed. Repression in childhood out of some, born of some conflict. And so in America, there were psychiatrists who would attempt to treat people with schizophrenia. And there were people with schizophrenia being urged to recall their childhood sexual impulses. And mothers were told that they were responsible, that somehow the behavior of the mother caused schizophrenia. So that's psychoanalysis, which did a, a terrible number on um, families of people who had members who were suffering from severe mental illness. But you have to remind yourself that in the early years, neurologists understood it was, or it was located in the brain, and the best they could do was lobotomy. So the people who knew it was a brain disorder stuck a ice pick in your head. And the people who thought it was merely psychological mm. thought the talking cure would release whatever repression it was that might be causing you to be psychotic. And what's unfortunate is that that paradigm didn't go away even after psychiatric antipsychotic drugs were discovered in the 50s. And so when deinstitutionalization happened, instead of really being just for that small percentage of most severely ill people, the old um, idea of psychoanalysis that everybody suffered from what Freud called the psychopathology of everyday life uh, was still in place, meaning everybody can profit from psychiatric interventions. And therefore it allowed them to speak about prevention and even about cure. And so if everyone is given some kind of care in a community mental health center, notice it's not called a community mental illness center, then mm. they may not develop severe illness. So you can tell yourself that by treating the well, you're actually preventing illness. And if the psychopathology of everyday life is a daily phenomenon, what Freud really did was redefine daily life, what we once called normal life, as pathological. And so yeah. it's kind of like a, approaching everything like a pandemic. Instead of saying, here are the sickest people and we're going to address their needs, 
the idea is we need a global cure to such an extent that even the war on poverty, which funded some of the first community mental health centers, blurred into a war on mental illness because they psychiatrists were arguing that just as the family could make you sick, it was your environment. So might the city, so might poverty. And if we could heal those communal ills as if the real patient was society, we would prevent mental illness. Meanwhile, people who had psychosis were wandering the streets uncared for. And it was, again, these are beautiful desires, but the mass diluting of mental illness was the problem. But you asked a very specific question, and perhaps I'm I'm just evading it was, it a perfect unf- definition, but it was it's, an unfair question. I think no, that's what it's, people you know, are interested in. And people in. who have psychotic yeah. symptoms for six months or longer are are def- there. Are many there are various criteria that need to be met. One of them is either delusions or a false perception of reality that persists for six months or more. And um, and it should be noted that twenty percent of people who have a psychotic break and are correctly diagnosed with schizophrenia don't have another one. And so the idea that used to be, when it was called dementia praecox, its first name, premature dementia, is that it was only an endless, bottomless decline towards incapacitation, which is not the case. I, yeah, I think I, I ask just because it's you're just looking for some sort of grounding because it's just so hard. It's so hard to take it all in, the entire story. I think about Carrie, the way you've described her, she his you know, killed fiance while he was experiencing delusions and thinking she was a wind-up doll and she was brutally stabbed to death. And it's, I, I look at it and she's such an impressive person, a brilliant person. And I can't fathom, and maybe you got closer to this and you have a better idea of it. I can't fathom why she was in the situation. I don't mean that with judgment. I don't mean that as as backward-looking criticism, but it's more that it's I'm trying to figure out what Michael had and what it was, because for somebody to be so sick and so delusional to have a fiance that he is at times thinking is an imposter or a wind up doll or whatever he's saying. And I'm looking at the situation, I'm going, how can this all coexist with a relationship that this very intelligent woman who seems to have it all together is there for, um, what, what would your answer to that be? Well, first of all, she loved him. That'd be part of the answer. And the answer was also, especially when he was medicated, even after he was ill, he was a very impressive and very charming person. And, um, the tragedy more was that somehow the feeling everyone had that no one could ever do anything even after he stopped taking his medication. Whereas it's an illness to be managed, um, but the people managing it were not able to say if he is not medicated and he has lost touch with reality, he needs to be hospitalized or there needs to be a way to both keep him safe and people near him safe. Uh, I would also imagine that they had weathered such things before. It wasn't the first time. And so it was possible to think, as she said to a friend the night before she was killed, we've gotten through this before. And so there was a way, I think, in which you might believe, although when she came to the door, he didn't recognize her and she went and slept at a friend's house because he was terrified of her. That was a dire period. But you're right in the sense that it 
seems extreme, but you can imagine how when you're inside of a relationship and the aspects of it that are wonderful are things you're connected to, it would be something you would be grappling with. The problem is that he was failed in a larger way by a, a, a medical community that was not able to simply regulate his illness. And most people... Uh, don't have illnesses that require inter that require other people to decide when it is you need to do something. It is, it's very rare about it is that it affects your mind. It affects the part of your body that makes that has that makes decisions. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have a slight amount of insight into it. I've known people. Again, this is back to the Jewish thing. I've known, uh, you know, for whatever reason, a handful of Jewish men high-functioning, who have had breaks of this nature, maybe not necessarily schizophrenic, but manic, bipolar, delusions, and they eventually came back to something more like normalcy. So I could understand, I could understand thinking that somebody that you were quite intimate with, that you would get through it. I also just, it's, it's, it's just so hard to fathom. There's something very it makes sense and yet it doesn't make sense that somebody who isn't just intelligent but highly intelligent could be more wrong about life than someone who is quite dull-witted. Uh, it's but it's but one of the reasons yeah. it's, it is important, it was important that you asked what is the illness, is that it is an illness. It's diagnosable because that way it's not, as it was once believed, a character failing. It, the idea of destigmatizing that's what another piece of the tragedy. People thought that by not only sort of discounting the diagnosis, but pretending away the things that can happen if you're not medicated uh, would destigmatize the condition. Whereas, of course, what happened was the opposite. He was on the cover of the New York Post under a single giant word, psycho, because he had done something extreme and horrible. And um, what was amazing is the Post ran all these excerpts from his book proposal, the same words that had persuaded Hollywood this was a great heroic story were used, were kind of testifying against him because in the context of Psycho, he did sound unmoored and dangerous. And so there is a way in which I think we've convinced ourselves that acknowledging any actual difference, any actual illness, any actual, you know, my kids both have learning disabilities. They never wanted to say learning difference. They knew it was a disability. That's why they had to work so hard. And so if we're fearful that acknowledging something might see, might make life harder for you or might, you know, deprive you of reason, then as a way of destigmatizing, we're doing the opposite of what we ought to do in order to ultimately make us all yeah. understand that these things are illnesses and thank God there are ways to care for them. Not good enough and we need more and better. And we thought we'd do much more. We thought there'd be a gene. There isn't a gene. There's constellations of genes that only predispose you, that get switched on and off by all kinds of factors. It is true, however, that someone who has a genetic predisposition should not use pot pot is a disastrous thing to do. And I, the only reason I say that is in case anybody's listening who has, who have kids and think that their kids have a predisposition, it's worth knowing because it's fine to say this is an innocuous drug and it may well be for many, many people, but it is also the case that for those who are already suffering from a serious mental illness or who are in a position to develop one, it's a disaster. Yeah. 
I I don't. It was probably not smart of me to have smoked weed growing up. It just now here you are. <laughs> but here I am. You know exactly. Uh, and it was weaker Russian than. I don't know. You're younger than me, but it was weaker <laughs> then than it is now too. Who knows? Yeah, I played Russian roulette with my brain apparently. Um, and <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> um, man, there's just there's so much here. The destigmatization as a hindrance for actually making people's Lives better is something that definitely resonates with me as a problem that isn't talked about enough. And we see it in so many instances. I mean, uh, they're not homeless, they're unhoused. And tomorrow there'll be a different de definition that's not going to actually put people uh, into shelter <laughs> or the care that they need. But that actually reminds me of something, which is why did mental illness cease to be fashionable in the culture? I mean, obviously, when I reference homeless, unhoused, whatever you want to say, there's a fair contingent that overlaps with with having mental illness. But it, it seems like in the 70s, especially, there was something kind of noble and celebrated in the 60s as well. You, your title is a reference to that, right, with the Allen Ginsberg poem of looking at people with such illnesses as almost heroic grapplers with, uh, you know, they're, they're almost mental pioneers, why do you think that's gone away and that's not really part of our civil rights discourse today? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I do think it was a novel, a novel moment where at the time people with severe mental illness were in hospitals mostly. So mm. there was a small group of people, the Beats, who actually had all been in most of the beats came of age in on the in, had seen the inside of an asylum by the time they were 25 Ooh. like Allen Ginsberg whose mother had severe schizophrenia and he signed her lobotomy the permission for her lobotomy and basically spent the rest of his life repenting it and he made um he turned a psychotic states into a kind of higher form of priestly functioning but he was a poet poets can do anything they want what's shocking mm. is how it was absorbed into mainstream culture for a time. And um, the one thing I, and I think one of the reasons we don't glorify psychosis right now is that we live among the ruins of, you know, we, yeah. we see what happened. I do, however, think that being wounded, that showing your scar, that being ill in some fashion is in fact seen as a condition that bestows yes. on you an elevated status. And so yeah. if that is the case, then there is a way in which um, we are teaching people not to see illnesses as things to be cared for, treated and overcome, but almost as a ticket of admission to a larger gathering of oppressed people, because oppression is now given an almost mystical meaning. It's again, it's a grows out of theory. Many of these things are hatched in the university. It's just when they escape the lab that it becomes mm. so strange. Most or, like, I mean, I'll just tell one quick story, which is that when I read a memoir by a psychologist who had run uh, the community mental health center in Baltimore in the late sixties, very idealistic young psychologist at the time, working with a small band of equally idealistic social workers and and other psychologists. And they were working in the inner city and they, what they believed is that everybody there needed their care. They had a handful of beds and the one group of people they were determined never to take were people released from state hospitals because those people needed 
all their energy and all their care and often didn't get better. And they were much more interested in healing the world and everybody in that community. And so he said, he basically very honestly, it's an honest reckoning, says, and what did the very poor, same poor, disadvantaged people in that community do if your mother or your father or your daughter or son had a psychotic break? They called the cops because the, yeah. the community mental health center wouldn't take them. And there's no way those people had any illusions about mental, about psychosis being a higher state of functioning. They had to actually call the police on their own children and they would only be, and they would be locked up for dis disorderly conduct as a rule. They would go then before a judge after spending a night in jail unmedicated in abject terror, which is an unimaginable thing. And then if they were lucky, they might be given a bed in a hospital. But the laws had been changed to slam the doors of the emptying asylums behind the patients. So you now had to be violent. It wasn't enough to be ill in order to go to a hospital. You had to be an imminent threat to yourself or others. And so if you were, if they were lucky, they, their uh, children, let's say, might be perceived as being violently psychotic. So they might be taken into a state hospital that hadn't all closed down because someone had to take them, but now had a much higher proportion of violent patients because those were now the requirements. And then they would very likely be released in a handful of days with medication that they most likely wouldn't take. So ordinary people, as a rule, any parent who suddenly had to understand the nature of mental illness as their children came home from long hospitalizations during deinstitutionalization, they had no illusions. They knew very well what it was like. Most people do. There were a group of people, some of them were psychiatrists, but they were psychoanalysts who didn't work with the severely ill, who had a romantic idea of what mental illness was. And that became part of the culture. But the culture as represented by a movie like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where the main character actually doesn't have mental illness, played by Jack Nicholson. He is there for other reasons. In the book, he's there for statutory rape, which wouldn't serve Hollywood. So he's just there mm. for kind of being a wise ass. And, um, the guy who made the movie, Milos Forman, had fled Czechoslovakia after the Soviets crushed the um, Prague Spring, and he just saw the whole story as being about state power, and it wasn't about mental illness at all. But I, growing up, thought, oh, that's what it means to be in a mental hospital. You're just different and oppressed, and then they give you a lobotomy, and if you're lucky, your friend smothers you to death. It's quite a thing to hope for. Um yeah, God, there is something to how it's no longer mental illness is no longer glorified, and yet there is something fashionable about people claiming it for attention on on a certain scale. And I'm not sure what to make of that that journey and how it rhymes with what it used to be. I guess we'll we'll and I could talk with you for hours, and unfortunately, I have another appointment. I'd love to bother you with more questions about your incredible book, but I guess we'll end on this. In the book, you visit Michael in the facility in which he's kept. And obviously you wrote about it and you wrote very well about it, but I, I just want to get a sense of what emotions are, are, are coursing through you uh, when you, when you speak with him, uh, do you have anger for what he did or do you feel as though it wasn't even as in his control? And when you talk with him, do you feel like you're talking with your friend or do you feel like you're speaking with an echo what is that like, man? What was what was that? What what did that I had experience a, do to yeah. you? Well, I had a, not visited for many, many, many years. 
and I, I guess you could say I had fled the whole reality of it. Um, but there were other reasons too. Uh, it was extremely strange and moving and painful. I thought it was correct and do think it was correct that he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The person who found him not guilty by reason of insanity had found Jeffrey Dahmer responsible for what he did. So mm. he had what would be called a high bar for um, yeah. incapacitation. And the, what was tragic for me was that it, since that was appropriate, it would also have been appropriate to decide that he was not responsible for his actions before he killed Carrie and should have been given help. But he was on the other side of something. And so he, there was an ex extraordinary amount that was familiar to me about him, but he did not acknowledge that he had killed Carrie and I didn't interview him about it. I only mentioned once tangentially, and it was clear that that's not how he was going to speak about it at all. And so in that sense, he was still inside of an aspect of his delusion. And he had also killed the person he loved most in the world. So were he to wake up in a sense to the full reality of what had happened, as far as I was concerned, that would be enough to make you mad anyway. Um, mm. I was really there just actually to be there. Um, my wife is trains chaplains and she was a chaplain at the time that I went and her, she was very helpful in just persuading me. You don't need to understand anything. You don't need to do anything. You're just going to be present. And, and that's what happened. And we talked about our childhood about which he had a extraordinary recall and, uh, as always a better memory than my own, even then, as if that part of him were somehow intact in a way. Um, yeah. but, uh, that was a long time ago. I haven't seen him for many, for a bunch of years, actually. Yeah. And what, what is the facility that he's at right now? I, I, I'm only not saying it for his sake, I suppose. Uh, oh, but okay. it's, I, even though it's in the book, so what, why am I not? I don't know, but <laughs> it's, okay. it's in, you know, the Hudson Valley. It's a, there are not that yeah. many. It's a forensic psychiatric hospital. It's, it's a maximum security psychiatric hospital. It, you would think it was a jail, perhaps. Yeah, I, um, you know, I found it fascinating that it was almost a coda to what was happening earlier in the book that he recalled. I'm not going to spoil everything about the book, but a time that you would, uh, you had been uh, roughed up and uh, had almost a different spin on it that was maybe flattering, more flattering to you. And this thing of childhood, this awkwardness from, you know, what had happened to you, whether he should have helped you. It almost in a way resolves itself in that meeting in a way that I found quite beautiful amid all this other tragedy. Uh, Jonathan, I always tell people on the outro to plug away whatever they should plug. I think I have an idea of what you might want to uh, tell people they should go check out. And, you know, anything else, uh, feel free. Thank you. You're, are you at, what are you at? I'm, forgive me. I didn't understand the question. I'm doing, well, I, it's <laughs> only because I did a very bad job. No, no, it. it's In my own. You, I, I, I said you can plug the book, but I sort of talked over it and rambled. Mostly because if I'm honest, if I'm totally honest about what's going through my mind right now, 
it's everything in your book and the conversation <laughs> that could just be so it gets very difficult to sometimes do the simple thing so i will plug the book for you jonathan the best minds a story of friendship madness and the tragedy of good intentions it came out in the later spring and it's just a towering work i i really I can't recommend it highly enough if that's not already obvious by the content of our conversation. And furthermore, I can't wait to see what you do going forward, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on.